But last week I spoke of how the gospel is not only for non-believers or new believers, it's not just simply the milk, it's actually the meat. And the message of the gospel is really also for mature believers as well. When we fully understand it and put it into practice, it changes everything we do as followers of Jesus Christ. And as we grow to understand the gospel, we must grow in what some call gospel renewal. It's really just another way of saying revival. This is a life-changing recovery, which means that the doctrines of sin and grace are actually experienced, and we have a renewed clarity of actually living them out. A man by the name of Richard Lovelist, who is a student of the history of revivals, says that Christians often believe in their heads that Jesus accepts me, therefore I will live a good life. But their hearts and actions are functioning practically on the principle that if I have a good life, then Jesus will therefore accept me. It's the reverse order, which is what we talked about last week. The results of this are that we can become prideful and arrogant, and if we are, and if we feel we are living up to a certain standard, uh, that we become insecure and anxious if we feel we are not. As a result, sometimes those people with whom we cross paths are repulsed and put off by us. In sharp contrast, however, is that if we live out a light of gratitude, because that we have been saved solely by grace through the works of Jesus Christ we become more and more each and every day a people of humility and compassion who press on to holiness with joy. The people that God places in our paths may then be more apt to be drawn to us because of our Christ-likeness. This is an awesome, powerful, wonderful thing that should become our driving passion in all we do. As a result, we preach first the good news of grace so people can then bear the bad news of God's judgment. In addition, we speak out against moralism and relativism and offer the gospel which brings joy and power. So how do we begin the process of gospel renewal? Jonathan Edwards once wrote, that at the start of every revival was what he called extraordinary prayer. Extraordinary prayer. Prayer that reaches beyond the normal day-to-day prayers that we so easily fall into. C. John Miller called it frontline prayer. Ephesians 6.4 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We do battle as believers in the heavenly places on the front lines, so to speak, through prayer. How would frontline prayer differ from the way that many of us pray each and every day? Three things, and you don't need to write this down. I'm going to show you what they are in just a moment. But first of all, Uh, Frontline prayer says that, first of all, by asking God for grace to confess sins and humble ourselves. 
It's living in the constant reminder that we are broken, fallen people saved by God's grace. It's the prayer that says, Lord, grant me the grace to confess my sins and become a person of humility. Number two, a compassion and zeal for the flourishing of the church and the reaching of the lost. It's the prayer that says, Jesus, my heart's desire is to be used by you to see the church flourish and reach the lost. And number three, a yearning to know God, to see his face, to get to glimpse his glory. It's the prayer that says, Almighty God, may I grow to know you more, to see your face and behold your glory. Now, one of the things that I do here at, at IBC is to teach the Sunday school class. In fact, I should be doing that right now and because uh, today's my day, the last Sunday of the month, and Scott Drake uh, graciously is filling in for me. But one of the things that kids love to do as part of a Sunday school lesson is a craft. So this might be the first time that you have actually done a craft during a first service, so this is, or Sunday service. So that's what we're going to do right now. So in your bulletin is this little strip of cardstock. And what I'm going to have you do is to kind of create your own little bookmark, your own little prayer, frontline prayer reminder card. So Brandon is going to put that up on the, um, on the screen right now for us. And it's the three things that I want to emphasize that will hopefully help change and guide the way you pray. Uh, so um, I think Ron is gone now, but there is a basket. Thank you very much, Crystal. If you do not have a pencil or a pen, Mrs. McCaughey has one for you now and would love to put one in your hands. I asked my wife, who loves to do really crafty things with kids, can we bring clip art and colored pencils and pens and stickers, and she denied me that pleasure. So you're going to have to make up your own little doodles and drawings, and by all means, as, as you uh, perhaps drift away from what I'm saying, you can just keep adding to this the whole service, and you'll be good, good to go. But here's what I want you to put on there, or something like that. Frontline Prayer, perhaps the title. If you want to change that, personalize it, you like some little different... Um, adjectives or adverbs or whatever. And Crystal, if you wouldn't mind, there's a couple of raised hands right up here in the front. We will be doubling your pay here soon for all the extra work you're doing. I greatly appreciate it. Number one, Lord, grant me grace to confess my sins and become a person of humility. Put that somewhere on this card. Number two, Jesus, my heart's desire is to be used by you to see the church flourish and reach the lost. And number three, Almighty God, may I grow to know you more, to see your face and behold your glory. Tuck that away somewhere in your Bible, wherever. Pull that out and use that to guide your prayer time. A couple of places in Scripture where you will find prayers like this, and you might want to jot this down as well. Uh, Exodus 33 is a place where Moses prays a prayer similar to this. Exodus 33, Nehemiah chapter 1, you'll find Nehemiah's uh, prayer in, in his uh, first chapter. And then also in Acts chapter 4, another prayer um, that would be similar to this and gives us a model. It's always great to use the scripture as models for our prayer time. Um, God's book of prayer, the book of Psalms, 
uh, all prayers. And uh, I would just encourage you to use the psalm every day to guide your prayer time. Just read through and pray through the psalms. And uh, that will just keep you on track and, and praying really directly into the heart of God because he wrote it and he's the author of all that. So go ahead and keep writing that down. Uh, once again, Exodus 33, Nehemiah uh, 1 and Acts chapter 4, if you want to jot those down and you can look at those um, throughout this week and just use it to uh, guide and direct uh, your prayer time. So as you're doing that, I'm just going to continue. So often our prayers lean toward the physical realm. When the real battles we face are in the spiritual realm, Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 29, says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest for your soul, your very being, when we commune and we connect with God. Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 25, says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all of them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. As we pray and grow in this way, the deeper the sense of our sin debt becomes, the more intense our sense of wonder at Christ's payment of it grows. As a result, we become simultaneously more humble within ourselves and more bold to share the good news of Jesus Christ and ultimately see more dramatically changed lives both within the church and in the lives of those who come to know Jesus. So sharing the gospel, what does it look like? What does it sound like? How do we go about doing it? First, it, is, it absolutely begins with the hearts and minds of each one of us. The gospel of Jesus Christ continually being made fresh and new in each one of us, what we call gospel renewal. Number two, there are no formulas. Do this, say that, and your neighbor, friend, or family member comes to Christ, and that's it. Don't we wish that it were that simple? Number three, God is sovereign. 
He is the one through the power of the Holy Spirit that will open the eyes of a person's heart. Matthew 16.13 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I don't need to go to bed at night wondering, did I say the wrong thing? Not at all. God is in control. We get to experience the joy, however, in being used by God as His mouthpiece. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Number four, there is no right or wrong way to share the gospel. There are many different ways, some perhaps better than others, depending on the person or the situation. A Billy Graham or a Greg Laurie at a stadium gives an invitation, and hundreds come forward. You develop a a relationship with a friend over a long period of time, telling them about Jesus, and one day they simply slam the door in your face and say, get out. No one can explain that. God is doing unbelievable things in other countries not right now. Not always so much so in the U.S. Do we really understand all of that? Probably not. God is sovereign. He is the one that's in control. Number five, some personal observations of what I've seen right here at IBC. My good friend Scott Drake. Scott has a relentless passion for pursuing people and telling them about Jesus. His heart burns for Christ. He texts people. He phones people. He emails them. He goes to their house. He will not be deterred. I had the joy and privilege of leading a life group with Stakat this past year. It was a joy. But you know, at times he moves so far outside of my comfort zone, it's not even funny. Half the time I'm thinking, what are you doing? And then the next thing, so-and-so is sitting in our study and I'm thinking, how in the world did he do that? Maria Lotzenheiser, God pulled her from the pit, gives her life in Jesus, and she has never had, and not, and that she, I got to start that sentence over. <laughs> God pulled her from the pit, gives her life in Jesus that she has never had, and now that Gospel Renewal has taken place, she tells me, I just love giving hope to other people. Isn't that a great line? I will never forget that. I just love giving hope to other people. She tells me she tells me she's with other people and just tells them about Jesus. And at times it makes some of them mad. They tell her to shut up and she says, "It's kind of hard sometimes, but I don't care. I'm just going to keep on telling them." She lives the power of the gospel every day. Sally Burridge, she has a Bible study at her house with locals from Garner Valley. She invites her neighbors, 
Some of those neighbors aren't believers. She told me, I don't know, Bob. We just study in Genesis and we study through to Revelation. They come and I tell them about Jesus. Some of you moms, I've heard stories. You hang out with other moms. You go to the playground and play with your kids. You get together with lunch, for lunch. Some of these moms aren't believers. You talk about your struggles with raising kids and you tell them about Jesus. Josh and Emily White, they own a business. They have to run it successfully for sure, but it's only a place, but it's also a place where they connect with people, lots of people. And those people are hurting. And as some of those people tell them their story, what's wrong with their life, the way it should be, and what will make it right again, slowly over time, they tell them about a God whose story can cross theirs and bring healing and restoration and forgiveness and grace and life. And the stories go on and on and on. Part of the way these people and many others of you intuitively know how to connect God's story with the story of others is by doing something called contextualization. Contextualization. Tim Keller, a pastor of a large church in downtown New York City, says, contextualization is not, as is often argued, giving people what they want to hear. Rather, it is giving people the Bible's answers, which they may not want to hear at all, to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking in language and forms they can comprehend and through appeals and argument with force they can feel even if they reject it. The great missionary task is to express the gospel message to a new culture in a way that avoids making the message unnecessarily alien to that culture, yet without removing or obscuring the scandal and offense of biblical truth. A contextualized gospel is marked by clarity and attractiveness, and yet it still challenges the sinner's self-sufficiency and calls them to repentance. It adapts and connects to the culture, yet at the same time challenges and confronts it. If we fail to adapt to the culture, or if we fail to challenge the culture, if we under or over contextualize, our ministry will be unfruitful because we have failed to contextualize well. And I know what you might be thinking you're thinking, Bob, you know, you just used the words missionary and culture. I thought you were talking about my neighbor right here in Idlewild. I most definitely am. Think about the different types of communities or people or cultures we have in our little town. We're a small town, about 3,500 people. We live in the mountains. We are semi-isolated, but only a couple hours from Los Angeles or San Diego. Who lives here? Why are they here? What are they looking for? Let's start with families, for example, specifically children. Under that umbrella, for example, here at IBC, we have preschool, elementary, middle school, and high school age kids. Heading up those ministries here at IBC, we have Lynn and Jeremy and Brandon. 
Do you think for a moment that they contextualize and connect the gospel story with each of these age groups in exactly the same way? Of course not. Let's go back to families. If you are married and have children, you are part of a culture that says and does things a certain way that revolves around your family. What's important to families, more specifically, what's important to raising kids? Different for different parents, for sure. Probably things like bringing up morally sound, responsible children. You want them to have a good education. Perhaps you want them to be involved in sports or music or some other extracurricular activity. Do you think parents are looking for answers to life's questions? Do you think spouses are looking for life's answers to the questions about their marriages? How does the gospel story cross with their story? Are there retired people here? What is their culture like? How are they making sense of their world? What about music and the arts? Are there people here that place a high priority on the arts? Is that a unique culture of its own? What about the people who place value on the care of the environment? Are there people here like that? What do they value? What is their culture like? I don't mean to suggest that God has gifted you to connect with only one type of person or culture. All of this is built around spending time with people, listening carefully to their stories and building relationships. But perhaps you are uniquely gifted to a certain subculture here. Do you have a passion for the arts? Could that be an open door for you in which to understand and identify uniquely with those people? Do you have a love for the outdoors? Has God gifted you to understand and communicate with others that have your passion? What about the people that are here from other countries that hold to particular religion? A Buddhist, a Hindu, a Muslim? What about the community here from Central America? The world is becoming a very small place. Make no mistake about it. They are all coming here to one degree or another and we have the amazing opportunity to connect the story of Jesus to their lives. A couple more things about contextualization. Number one, there is no one single way to perfectly express the Christian faith. The moment you express it, you have just made it more clear to some and less clear to others. Number two, the truths of the gospel are not the products of any culture and they stand in judgment over all human cultures. If you forget, number one, that there is only one way to communicate the gospel, you are well on your way to becoming rigid and legalistic. If you forget the second truth, that there is only one true gospel, you are on your way to becoming a relativist. And everything is truth, and you become tossed about like a ship on the ocean without a rudder. Do whatever you like. It all sounds good. Let's look at one example. The Apostle Paul was an absolute master at contextualization, and so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Acts. And I'm in Acts chapter 17. 
New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts is the fifth book. Acts chapter 17, the story of the early church. Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 22. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for indeed, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Look at what Paul does. First of all, he identifies his audience, the culture. He's not talking to Jews, he's talking to Greek philosophers. He's at a place called the Areopagus, probably on Mars Hill, where this long established court of men met that had authority over religion and morality. Paul was a well-educated, brilliant man, and he knew their culture and religion well. Secondly, he, co he instantly connects with their religion, their story. In a way, he even kind of affirms the good in it and does it in what appears to be a very polite and respectful manner. Verse 22 says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. Paul is saying, you want to know God? You're working at it. You have even made objects that testify to it. He acknowledges their story, and they're seeking after trying to make sense of the world that they're living in. Third, now enter the gospel. Verse 23, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Time to connect their story with the truth of God's word 
and redirect them with the only answer that can save them. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. What is Paul saying here? God made everything. He is Lord. He is in control and will exercise His will on all of His creation. These temples you have here, God doesn't live in any of them. God does not need anything you have built for Him. He is eternal and self-sufficient. He gives to all mankind everything we need. It all comes from Him. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Here he uses the phrase one man. He's talking about Adam, which would have appealed to their ancestral unity and strong sense of brotherhood. Once again, he's drawing on their own religious beliefs. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God is near. He is right here and not some distant, uncaring being. At the beginning of verse 28, it says, in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, he gives us life. The end of verse 28 says, even some of your poets have once said, once again drawing from their own beliefs and using it to point to them to the truth of Scripture. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, since we are his offspring, he is alive. Verse 30, now he commands all people everywhere to, pre- to repent. Paul presents the problem. Our sin separates us from God. Verse 31, by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now he begins to give the solution to that problem as being found only in Jesus. Verse 33, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. At this point, Paul had really pushed some buttons and it appears that he didn't complete his presentation of the message. Verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Some believed and some did not. And they agreed that they're going to meet and talk about it at another time. Great example. It's not the only example by far and not the only way even Paul or other people in the Bible share the story of Jesus. If you were to simply go back one chapter into chapter 16, you find Paul speaking to three different people in three very different situations in three very different ways. Lydia, a wealthy woman searching for God, a demon-possessed slave girl, 
and later the Philippian jailer. All three different situations, different people, and Paul is communicating the gospel in three very different ways. In addition, we as people, we have different temperaments that we need to be aware of when we share the gospel. As we share the truth of the gospel, those temperaments will come out. People of a more conservative nature may want to stress the judgment of the Bible even more than the Bible does. Those that are of a liberal nature may want to stress the unconditional love of the Bible even more than the Bible does. People that tend to be more rational need to see the importance of narrative and those who like stories need to see the importance of reasoned arguments. The Bible itself uses a range of motivations when appealing to their readers to believe and obey the truth. A New Testament scholar by the name of D.A. Carson put a list together of six different motivations to use when appealing to non-Christians. Number one, sometimes the appeal is to come to God out of judgment or fear and death. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Number two, sometimes the appeal is to come to God out of a desire for release from the burdens of guilt and shame. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on good works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Number three, sometimes the appeal is to come to God out of appreciation for the attractiveness of the truth. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Number four, sometimes the appeal is to come to God to satisfy unfulfilled existential longings. The example here is the story of the woman at the well. And I pick up the story in verse 4 in John chapter 4. John 4, 7 says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. 
Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. Number five, sometimes the appeal is to come to God to help with a problem. Matthew 9.20 says, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And number six, sometimes the appeal is to come to God simply out of a desire to be loved. The, that, the person that will love us perfectly and like no other is Jesus. My hope and prayer is that we become so overwhelmed with the love that God brings through His Son, Jesus Christ, that we serve Him with joy and fullness of heart and proclaim that same love to those people that God has placed in our paths. Would you bow with me in prayer right now? Our most precious Heavenly Father, we are a grateful, grateful, blessed people because of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Because You have paid our sin debt and You have placed Your righteousness on us. I would ask that we learn day by day to walk in the humility of the Gospel. Lord, we are broken. And we confess that our sin has broken us and separated us from You. Thank You that Your Son has restored that permanently once and for all. I pray for Your church, Father. I pray for Your church here in this community, here around the world, and here at IBC, that we would become a people that are bold and humble to share the Gospel, that we would see the church flourish in Your name. And that you would reveal to us your beauty and your glory. And that we would behold you and see your face more and more every day. That you would be pleased to use us as your mouth and your feet and your hands. Thank you, most precious, holy, holy, high God. In your name we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen.